0: Welcome to this DJSM podcast. I'm here at the University of Groningen at the Sports Medicine Conference with Dr. Stephen Stovitz. He's a sports medicine physician and researcher at the University of Minnesota, where he's an associate professor and director of their non-surgical sports medicine unit. He's a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine and a senior associate editor at the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Welcome, Stephen, to Holland. Thank you very much for that. You've written lots and presented on issues related to sports injury epidemiology and evidence-based medicine. Where does your interest come from?
1: Well, before I got into research, I was a clinician for many years, and I um, actually find research and clinical work to be very similar. As a clinician, I've always felt that we ask ourselves um, questions of what I term the if or if instead issue. So it is if I do something for the patient, I think this will happen. And if instead I do something else, I think that will happen. And that's really the uh, the question that I think clinicians find themselves in, in sports medicine. Um, When you have a tendinopathy, you think, if I give nitro patches, I think this will happen. If I do PRP, I think that will happen. And so I think clinicians are actually researchers at heart, but they don't know it. Um, And so I find research to be a natural extension of my clinical work.
0: You spoke today in Groningen and at the ACSM on what you term evidence-informed medicine. Why do you suggest that term over evidence-based medicine?
1: Well, um, first of all, the term evidence-informed medicine is not one that I've created, um, but it is one that's very infrequently used. And the reason that I think it's a better term is I think that evidence-based medicine has faltered in its extension of how we translate evidence into clinical care. Evidence-based medicine has very good reasons for its existence, and it's uh, benefited uh, clinical medicine tremendously. We need to use the best evidence we possibly can. but when you are seeing a patient and uh, you're faced with a one-time decision for that patient, I don't think that evidence-based medicine necessarily gives us the tools that we need to decide whether a patient should choose a certain treatment or another treatment. And that's why I think that evidence should inform our clinical decision-making, but we, nas- we should not necessarily base our clinical decision-making on the evidence and nothing else.
0: Well, today, you started with an example that really got me. You asked us, well, can you tell tell us a little bit about the $3,000 that you offered us? Sure. I uh started the presentation with
1: a question to the audience and I've I've done this question repeatedly uh and it comes from the work of Kahneman and Tversky who were uh, uh economists and uh back in the 19 late 1970s came up with uh, uh something they called prospect theory but anyways they they have an example where they ask people whether they would rather have $3000 or an 80% chance of $4000 and a 20% chance of nothing. So you have a choice of either A, a certain $3,000, or B, a a risk, which would be 80%, $4,000, 20%, nothing. 90% of people, and I've done this repeatedly in many audiences and now in the Netherlands, 90% of people, at least, will choose the certain $3,000. Now, if you think about it, they're actually choosing what evidence would find is inferior. Because as a group, if you took the 80% chance of $4,000 as a group, the group would make an average of $3,200. So the group that took the risk would actually benefit more than the people who took the certain. But everyone on an individual basis, not everybody, but almost everybody, will choose the certainty when it comes to gains. What makes this more interesting is if you do the flip and you do the reverse and you say, what if you have a choice of losing $3,000 or an 80% chance of losing $4,000? And then you find the exact opposite. Here, people take the risk. So in the losses, they're actually taking the average loss of 3,200 versus the certain loss of 3,000. The point being, in each case, people choose what would be the inferior treatment. And that's how people make individual decision making decisions. They they like to choose certainty when it comes to gains, and they will take risks when it comes to losses. And during the presentation, I brought up how I think that this impacts clinical care and explains why patients will choose things that evidence finds inferior. And I think why clinicians sometimes butt heads with evidence-based medicine when they get a recommendation, but they have a sense, a feeling, a, a gestalt that perhaps they should choose the inferior treatment.
0: Yes, can you, well, you gave the practical example of the, of the hip problem, the hip surgery.
1: Yeah, so if you're seeing a patient who would be a, let's say the example I gave was a 65-year-old who comes in with severe hip pain for for uh, one to two months, and you take an x-ray and it's, and it's bone-on-bone arthritis, if there was a randomized control trial on that, it, it would show that a total hip replacement would be superior to anything else we could do. Yet, we all know in clinical medicine, when you're seeing the patient, that they would start off by choosing the low-intensity treatments first. So this is where I think that we, would, we, we naturally choose things that the evidence, if there were a study on it, would find inferior, yet for the patient, it's the best choice.
0: Yeah and then and then in your presentation you talked about baseline risk and how that could present uh, sorry influence evidence. So yeah,
1: the example I gave there was that evidence may suggest that a certain treatment is better than another treatment. Um, And the example I gave was where something would reduce your risk for a bad outcome from 95% to 85%, which would be you'd have to treat 10 people, the number needed to treat would be 10. And I think if it was a risk of a bad outcome uh, and your risk, your baseline risk was very high, such as 95%, you might be likely to want to lower your risk down to 85%. Conversely, if your risk for the bad outcome was very low, such as 15%, and you could lower that to 5%, you might want to take your chances. The thing that's important for clinicians to understand is that in both of those scenarios, the evidence would be the same. The evidence would be that the absolute risk reduction would be 10%, number needed to treat 10. I understand that the relative risk would differ, but we don't base decisions on that. So baseline risk is another example of where I think that we would Choose differently based on the baseline risk that the patient has for a good or a bad outcome, regardless of treatment.
0: Yeah, you gave, uh, you gave an interesting example with a Russian roulette, which I didn't understand until you st- started talking about six bullets. So, yeah, the example I gave was it was uh, a question that is
1: proposed, uh, and I again, I think this was from Kahneman and Tversky, although I'm not sure, where if someone is faced uh, with a game of Russian roulette, and there's six chambers, and they can pay a certain amount of money, money is the value that we attribute to, to choices, to remove one bullet from the chamber. And the question you ask people is how much would you pay to have a bullet removed if there's one bullet in the chamber, and how much would you pay if there's more bullets in the chamber? The thing that's important to understand is that the removal of any particular bullet lowers your risk of death by 17%. But If there's six bullets in the chamber, your risk of death is very certain. So you would pay a lot of money to remove that one bullet. Whereas if there's fewer bullets, you might still pay a lot of money, but perhaps it would be less. And this is why somebody who, again, is at high baseline risk for a bad outcome might choose differently. The the point of all of this being that the evidence would be the same of 17% risk reduction with the Russian roulette – But a patient may choose differently. And again, my point is that I don't feel that we have done as good a job as we could do in translating the evidence into what is best for the particular patient.
0: Another topic you discussed was uh, sensitivity and specificity. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: So, um, yeah, it wasn't until that uh, I had been practicing for, um, I don't know, about 10 years, and I then started to study uh, epidemiology a bit and um, learn the, the, the uh, actual definitions of these terms that we use quite a bit, sensitivity and specificity. And I realized that those terms, in my opinion, are uh, not the way clinicians think. So um, sensitivity and specificity, as you know but better, are based upon, uh, well, sensitivity is patients with the disease and specificity is patients without the disease. And as clinicians, I think, well, quite quite briefly, if we knew whether the patient had the disease or didn't have the disease, we wouldn't do the test. So as clinicians, we think more along what I call the rows, which are predictive values. So the example I gave was one of uh, sickle cell testing in non-blacks, which is uh, an issue we have in college campuses around the United States, where we offer... Uh, the incoming athletes' uh, sickle cell disease testing. Um, The rate of sickle cell is about 1 in 500 non-blacks. And uh, what I showed was that even with 99% specificity and 100% sensitivity, if you got a positive test in a non-black, your positive test would be correct only 1 in 6 times. It would be incorrect 5 out of 6 times. And that's the part that I think people don't get when they hear a very high specificity specificity like ninety nine percent and a sensitivity of one hundred percent they think that their test will be accurate, but if the prevalence is low enough, they will still be wrong usually with a positive test
0: mm-hmm. and continue on this same topic um, we discussed we, yeah you briefly discussed cardiac screening and then you explained the issues behind false positive rates
1: yeah, so false positive rates another interesting one it 's um, Uh, The the definition of false positive rate is the number of false positives over all those who don't have the disease. Um, Again, this I find to be a very bizarre definition for clinicians because if we knew they didn't have the disease, we wouldn't do the test. And my point is that when clinicians hear that there's a false positive rate of 15% for ECG screening and maybe we can lower it to 5%, um, they often think that that's the number of false positive tests they get over all the positive tests they get, which is not the case. So. Um, It's, again, where clinicians think along the rows of the people who have either a positive test or a negative test. The terms are defined along the columns in the typical two-by-two table, with people with a disease or without the disease. And so, again, I asked the question about what's the definition of the false positive rate. And most people in the audience, which, again, I've repeated elsewhere, will think that it's uh, the rows when, in fact, it's the columns. And if you have a low prevalence, uh, you're, you're not quite understanding the way that the term is defined.
0: Well the the big question mark that we're still left with is how do we translate this evidence-based medicine into clinical practice what yeah what do we recommend
1: so that's where uh, in the presentation I had a big question mark and and I I still don't really have the answer for this and I think this is where the sports medicine community and actually the medicine, medical community as a whole needs to look I I am not convinced that These clinical recommendations we come out with are uh, the way that evidence should be translated into clinical care. Um, And this returns back to the the issue of individual decision making. Um, I, I definitely think we need to 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 perform the best evidence. I think we need to synthesize the best evidence. And I think expert panels should come up with what they think the evidence states. I'm not, the, the problem I have is where it gets into, thus we recommend something versus something else because it's superior. Because the patients are the ones that should always be at our forefront. And patients have a lot of reasons why they might not want to choose what the evidence shows is superior. So again, I think we should uh, synthesize the best evidence, say what's superior to something else, but I don't think superior should necessarily be synonymous with recommended.
0: Thank you, Stephen, for showing us this new way to look at evidence-informed sports medicine.
1: Thank you very much, Babette. It's my pleasure, and it's been wonderful being in the Netherlands.